Uh, VJ Day was uh, the day in August of 1945 when the Japanese stopped fighting, essentially putting an end to World War II. And this was obviously a day of really good news. Uh, dancing in the streets sort of good news. Here is an image from uh, London uh, on that day. Some soldiers and some young ladies uh, swimming in a fountain. Uh, sort of this seemingly spontaneous reaction to the news that the war was over. And uh, the countless lives that have been lost, uh, been, been, been a reprieve from all of that. And people could go home, right, and be with their families once again. And, of course, we're a little more familiar with this iconic image uh, in Times Square, New York City, on this particular day. Uh, in the euphoria, this soldier is embracing and kissing a total stranger, right? A dental assistant who happened to be walking down the street when uh, the celebration came by and everyone was swept up in this euphoria. Uh, certainly news of the war's end was good news indeed. And yet I would suggest to you that it was not the best news. Uh, Romans... Uh, Paul's letter to the Romans is a great treatise on the gospel, uh, which literally means good news, and it is the best of all possible news. We're going to unpack that here this morning. We are in the midst of a series uh, entitled Route 66, uh, where we are taking a road trip through the Bible, considering all 66 books of the Bible in a calendar year, in 52 weeks. So um, we are going to, to look at the book of Romans from... Uh, 30,000 feet, and understand the major themes and contours of the good news, of the gospel. Uh, last week, Jimmy preached on the book of Acts, uh, the little gray volume on the bottom left of the shelf, and uh, Jimmy drew attention to the fact that Acts is sort of uh, on its own a little bit. It's a transitional book. We have the, the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell us about the life and ministry of Jesus centered on his death, burial, and resurrection uh, to secure salvation for humanity. Uh, and then Acts tells about the development, the birth, and the growth, and the spread of the early church. And then the series of blue volumes there are letters written by the Apostle Paul to various churches and individuals and so uh, Romans heads that list. Uh, they're not necessarily in chronological order. Uh, Romans happens to be the largest of Paul's volumes, and so it is put at uh, the front of the line. And I think that's appropriate, consider, considering uh, how it unpacks this grand theme of the gospel. Now, Acts recorded a great deal of movement Right, we were all over the place last week, uh, from Jerusalem uh, all the way, uh, Jimmy had the concentric circles there on his, on his PowerPoint, but uh, from Jerusalem all the way to Rome, to the ends of the earth. Romans is very different. Romans is a letter. It records very little movement. It is somewhat dense. It's a, a theologically rich letter. But I want to suggest to you that there is a narrative here that lies behind the letter. And uh, if we're going to really understand what's going on and what's, what's driving Paul to write, we have to understand 
uh, that narrative. So uh, let's set the stage here. Romans 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we learn about this book? What do we need to know about the backdrop? It was written by the Apostle Paul. Paul identifies himself here at the outset. Who was Paul? Uh, Paul was a Jewish man, and he was uh, a Jewish man who took his Jewish faith very seriously. Matter of fact, as a young man, uh, Paul was sent to study in Jerusalem under Gamaliel, the premier teacher of the law. And Paul would become a Pharisee, part of the group of ultra-conservative uh, individuals committed to rigidly observing the law of Moses. So Paul was, again, not just ethnically Jewish, but he was observant in his Jewishness. He was also a fanatical persecutor of Christians. So this Rabbi Jesus was... Uh, introducing something that was, uh, uh, that was revolutionary. <laughs> and so Paul was, and along with the other Pharisees, of course, were committed to sort of squashing uh, Christianity and persecuting followers of Christ. But while Paul was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians, he had a dramatic encounter with the resurrected Jesus. He, he was blinded by a great light, and Jesus spoke to him and addressed him there on that road. And he had a clear and dramatic conversion experience. He had been the church's greatest opponent, and now he was the church's greatest proponent. Matter of fact, his conversion was so dramatic that for a long time, the early believers uh, did not believe that he was a Christian. I mean, he had been so overt in his persecution of Christians, they just didn't trust him. Could this really be true that, that Paul uh, has become a follower of Jesus? Uh, he had a notorious reputation and so Paul is a reminder of the power of the gospel to change a life. And uh, we could recount many other stories of God's amazing grace and the power of the gospel that has changed our lives, right? But Paul, we kind of put there and say, man, he, here's a guy that if Paul could be saved, anybody could be saved. Anybody could be changed and transformed. Paul identified himself here in a couple of different ways in Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, or literally a slave 
Our English translations tend to soften it a bit, but it's slave language, and this would have certainly been a loaded title uh, in the ancient world, uh, particularly as he wrote to a Roman uh, context where up to half the population in Rome were slaves. And Paul says, I too am a slave. I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. I have a, I have a new master. Right? He also identifies himself here as an apostle, which literally means a sent one. Uh, this was terminology generally reserved for those original 12 disciples But Paul had encountered the risen Christ and received a special assignment to take the gospel to the Gentile world. So he had been commissioned with this task. And I would suggest to you it was one for which Paul was uniquely suited. Uh, Paul was ethnically Jewish, but he didn't grow up in Israel. He grew up in Tarsus in modern-day Turkey. Uh, he grew up in, in what was a center, uh, one of the main centers for learning in the ancient world. We're told that Paul was a Roman citizen, uh, which means that his parents had some measure of influence and were probably uh, people of means in the ancient world. So uh, Paul was given the name Saul at his birth, the Hebrew name Saul after the king of Israel. But Paul took on his Gentile name as he engaged in this mission to the non-Jewish people of the world. So Paul is very acquainted with the Jewish world and the scriptures, but he was also well acquainted with the Gentile world. But Paul was going to be able to take uh, the message of the scriptures rooted in uh, the nation of Israel and the people of Israel and convey it effectively to the non-Jewish people throughout the known world. So this was the the task that God had given to Paul. Paul was also a tent maker. Uh, He would make shelters and awnings, and this was one of the ways that he supported himself on his various missionary journeys. Uh, We also know that Romans was written to a diverse group of Christians in Rome. Rome was a city of perhaps 4 million people, and again, it was a place of unique influence, a particular object of Paul's attention. Paul had been wanting to get to Rome for some time. He acknowledges this in chapter 15, but he had not been there yet. And so how did the church come to be? Uh, Paul didn't start this church. He started churches all over uh, Asia Minor and modern-day Turkey and Uh, into Europe, but he didn't plant this church in Rome. How did it come to be? Uh, We don't really know the definitive answer to that question, but we do know that when the church was first launched, Acts chapter 2, Jews from all over the known world were gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, and God pours out his Spirit, and the church is born. And we are told there in chapter 2, along with a list of many different ethnic groups, that there were visitors from Rome who were present there at Pentecost. And we can only imagine that they, uh, many of them, came to know Jesus as their Savior and took the message of the gospel back home uh, to Rome. 
There was a sizable Jewish population of around 40,000 in Rome, and so it, it shouldn't surprise us that the gospel found its way to the capital city of the empire. While Paul had never been to Rome himself, he was well acquainted with many people in the church in Rome. If we were to go to chapter 16, you see a whole section there of greetings where uh, Paul clearly was writing to some people that he knew there in the church. So uh, people that had, uh, he had crossed paths with who had made their way now to the big city of Rome. So again, the church was mixed. It included both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles. We notice how Paul identifies these believers. It's a beautiful description in chapter 1, verse 7. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. What a great designation, right? These were not uh, perfect people. These were not people who uh, had done an extraordinary amount of good works, who had somehow earned this great status. Uh, These were people who were loved by God. These were people who had been called by God to be holy, to be set apart, to be his distinct people in the world. So this great uh, statement here about their identity, uh, an identity that I would suggest to you we share. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are one who is loved by God, and you are one who has been called to be his holy people. Romans was also written out of a broader context of Christian community. We talk about Paul, the author. We talk about the, the Roman church as the, the readers of the letter. But there were many others who were part of the narrative. Um, we were introduced to a man named Tertius in chapter 16. Tertius was, the secreta- was Paul's secretary or scribe. So Paul uh, would have dictated the letter uh, and Tertius would have actually been the one to write it down. Uh, we actually have reason to think that Paul had poor eyesight, but in any regard, this would have been a standard procedure, and I think uh, sort of a, a first-century editorial process. Right? We think of something, a manuscript goes, and the editors say, oh, well, I don't know about that. What do you think about this? Or what if we tightened up this section? Or I think we could do a little bit better here. Um, it seems that maybe there was something of that going on here. I have to think there was some interplay. Tertius saying, can I just clarify what you just said? Or uh, whatever it was, sort of this, this primitive editorial process that was going on behind the scenes. Paul also identifies Gaius of Corinth as his host. So interesting, Paul's traveling. He's in Corinth at this point, And he's staying in the home of a man named Gaius, who maybe had some space where Paul could devote time to writing this letter. So just to kind of orient ourselves a little bit, Paul would have started in Antioch. That's where he would have been sent out on that first missionary journey. And now we're on the third missionary journey, and Paul makes it as far as Corinth. Uh, He's actually kind of broaches into Europe. That was a major shift into Philippi and and Corinth. Uh, But he, of course, didn't make it all the way to Rome on that third missionary journey. But he's there in Corinth. That's as close as he's going to get to Rome at the moment. And so he stops and pens this letter. Um, So we have this this context here. Uh, We also are introduced to a woman named Phoebe, who is the courier. Think about it. How are you going to get the letter to Rome? 
You don't just drop it in the nearest post office. Uh, you have to figure out a way to get it there. And Phoebe was that messenger. Uh, she is not known to the church in Rome, so Paul actually devotes a little time there in chapter 16 to sort of introduce her. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at St. Cray, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So, uh, Phoebe, she was a servant of the church. Matter of fact, some translations say she was a deacon of the church. That's the word. That, that servant word is our, is our deacon word. And sometimes it refers to someone who is just a servant. Uh, sometimes it refers to someone who holds an official position. But Phoebe was a hard worker, a faithful servant there in the church in St. Cray, which was just a few miles outside of Corinth. Uh, we're also told that she was a patron uh, a benefactor. So the sense is that Phoebe was um, a person of means. We don't know if she was entrepreneurial, if she owned her own business, but she was given to supporting people, including Paul. Matter of fact, many have suggested that she likely underwrote this writing project for the letter to the Romans. Uh, it's been suggested that uh, it would have cost over $2,000 in our currency to produce the letter to the Romans. I mean, you had to secure parchment, which was not cheap, and there was ink supplies, and there was uh, the, the securing of a scribe who would devote time to actually getting it down in a legible format. And, of course, that doesn't include the transportation or delivery costs to actually get it from Corinth to Rome. So it was not a cheap proposition, and the sense is that Phoebe... Uh, was Paul's patron and supported him as well as many others. So this is all part of the, the, the sort of backdrop. There's this broader sense of Christian community that is going on here uh, in the book of Romans. It was also written to establish the church in the unity of the gospel. It was written to establish the church in the unity of the gospel. Romans was not a brief gospel tract or brochure for unbelievers. It was a comprehensive gospel treatise for the church. So Luke alluded to it already, whether you've heard it, uh, you're hearing uh, the, the, the message of the book of Romans for the first time or the hundredth time. Uh, the fact is, Paul was writing this to the church. The church needed to hear the gospel. We know lost people need to hear the gospel, but the church needs to hear the gospel. And Paul wrote this wonderful treatise so that the church could be really grounded in the truth. Paul knew, and I, I can't help but wonder if this is why uh, his letter to the Romans was the biggest of all his letters. At some level, Paul knew that the church in Rome would exert tremendous influence. If the church in Rome got the gospel right, that would have ripple effects uh, down the road. Uh, Paul had also experienced intense persecution. Uh, people were plotting for his life. And so perhaps Paul feared that he would not have the opportunity to teach these things directly to the believers in Rome. Now, Paul, we know Paul did eventually make it to Rome, but uh, he made it to Rome as a prisoner. 
So he really didn't have the opportunity to sit down and have a big class and walk through the ins and outs of the gospel. Uh, and we can certainly be thankful from where we stand 2,000 years later that Paul wrote it down, <laughs> that he didn't just convey it orally, but that he took the time to write it down and passed it on to the Gentile church as a sacred trust. I also would suggest to you that Paul wanted to address ethnic tensions. So not only was, was Paul wanting to establish the church in the gospel, but he was wanting to establish the church in the unity of the gospel. There's an ethnic piece that is really strong in the book of Romans. As a matter of fact, Paul devotes an inordinate amount of time to Jew-Gentile issues. Three whole chapters towards the end of the book, 9 through 11. But it's just throughout. And I think it reflects... Uh, some of the dynamics that were going on between Jews and Gentiles. Here's uh, Suetonius, a historian, who wrote, Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome because they were constantly rioting at the instigation of Crestus. Uh, this seems to be a, a, a reference to the tensions that developed within the Jewish community regarding Christ. Right? There was, this was a hot-button topic in the Jewish community. And the emperor was tired of it. <laughs> Get out. He expelled the Jewish people from the city. And we have biblical testimony to this as well. Um, Acts chapter 18, verse 2. He, Paul, found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and he went to see them. So Priscilla and Aquila were some of those Jews who were expelled from the city of Rome merely because they were Jewish. Now by the time Paul is writing to the church in Rome, these Jewish people have been able to return. But clearly there were ethnic dynamics there. These Jewish Christians were the, the backbone of the church in Rome. But then they were expelled from Rome, and the church took off, and these Jewish Christians now come back and find themselves in the minority. They find themselves perhaps being looked down on a bit by the Gentile Christians. We don't know all the dynamics. But part of what Paul is writing to achieve here is unity in the gospel between Jew and Gentile. Well, a gospel overview. Here at the outset in chapter 1, Paul does give a brief summary statement. Uh, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So we see a few things. We're introduced to some key words that I think sort of set the stage for the rest of the letter. Uh, the gospel brings salvation. The gospel is, uh, it, it tells us that we're in danger and it, and it points us how we can be rescued. Okay, So we, we get a sense of the the. the, the the context of the gospel. 
Um, we see here in this opening summary that salvation is not earned as a wage through effort, but is received as a gift through faith. Right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So we don't receive salvation through our accomplishments or through moral behavior. Uh, we receive salvation as a gift of God's grace through faith. We see that this salvation involves righteousness. What, what are we saved from, right? It's not describing a military salvation or a political salvation. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So this salvation involves the provision of righteousness, a right standing before God. In our natural condition, we're sinful, devoid of righteousness, alienated from a holy God. But in the gospel, God offers his own righteousness on our behalf so that we can be reconciled to God. This, this word righteousness, uh, the, the root word is also used as a verb. To make righteous, or to make right, or to justify. This theme of justification is one of the strong themes in, in the letter to the Romans. Of how people can be made right. Particularly in their relationship with God. How can we be made right? And of course, even here, in this just brief little summary statement, this little gospel overview... Uh, we see reference to Jew and Gentile. Even here, Paul begins to introduce uh, these ethnic themes that are a part of his purpose. But of course, uh, Romans is not just a gospel overview, right? It's not just a brief brochure. It is a gospel treatise. It is a, an exhaustive um, treatment of the gospel. Uh, during a 12-year period beginning in October 1955, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached a series of 372 sermons on Romans at the Westminster Chapel in London. So, if you want to go through verse by verse, phrase by phrase, uh, Lloyd-Jones sometimes spend multiple weeks on a single verse, okay? That's not where we're going today, all right? So I know I'm going to leave out your favorite verse in Romans. I, I'm sure, for some of you, I'm going to leave out your favorite verse. Uh, but we are going to, again, take a look from 30,000 feet here and trace out the major contours of the gospel. Uh, I'm going to specifically highlight four movements. The first is gospel need gospel need. Here's where Paul talks specifically uh, regarding the Gentiles. Uh, Romans 1 verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So we're, we're in a bad way. In our natural condition, we are under the wrath of God because of our sin. Paul goes on to, to declare that people are without excuse. 
God's existence is self-evident and obvious from the complexities of the created order. Uh, We can tell just by looking at the grandeur of creation that there is a God. If you're walking in the woods and you see a log cabin, you don't think, wow, that's amazing how those trees fell like that. You know, no, you think, oh, someone was here and built a log cabin, right? Even just that sort of rudimentary complexity speaks to a designer. And Paul says that uh, uh, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. So Paul wants to just say we, we, are, we are without excuse. We, we know of the existence of God. We, we don't want to suppress that sometimes. We don't always want to be accountable uh, certainly the world doesn't want to be accountable to a creator, but, but we know it to be true, and we deny what we know to be true. And we're without excuse. Paul talks here in this opening section about the conscience, that we've been hardwired with a basic sense of right and wrong. And again, we suppress our conscience. Paul describes the downward spiral of rebellious humanity Uh, People have worshipped the creature rather than the creator. Instead of worshipping God, they have worshipped themselves. This is certainly true in our day. One of the books I'm working through is Truman's uh, book, The The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. That uh, our feelings trump all. (laughs) You know, it uh, doesn't matter what objective reality says about my gender or anything else. My feelings trump all of that. It's about me, and I don't want to worship anyone. I don't want to submit to anyone. I, I, I am my own king. This is the, 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 the clear pattern of sinful, rebellious humanity, and it has caused us to be under the wrath of God. But Paul doesn't want to just focus on Gentile peoples. Uh, He wants to also uh, make sure that, 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 uh, to to declare that that the Jewish people as well are guilty before God. The Jewish people might have reason to boast, right? They they had entered into a unique covenant relationship with God. Uh, They had been entrusted with the scriptures, uh, but they hadn't obeyed the scriptures, (laughs) They, too, had violated God's law. They were lawbreakers. And so by the time Paul gets to the end of this section, he just says, every mouth is silenced and the whole world is held accountable to God. There are no exceptions. There are no outliers. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So part of the, part of the, the, the good news of the gospel is having to understand the bad news. And so he presents gospel need. In the next section, he presents gospel provision. How has God brought about salvation? How has God provided rescue for the desperate situation of humanity? And Paul describes it in three successive stages. The first is justification. That we have been granted a new status. Notice chapter 3, verse 21 Paul turns the corner here, talking about our sinfulness, but then in 3.21, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. 
This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely, all are made right freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So none of us have achieved righteousness by obeying God's law, but God has made righteousness available in another way. We can receive this righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, actually, Paul in chapter 4 puts Abraham forward as the example. Abraham was the, you know, the father of the Jewish people. Uh, Abraham was circumcised. Abraham uh, uh, you know, walked as part of God's covenant people. But Paul points out that Abraham was declared righteous before he did any of those things. Uh, Paul quotes out of Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. So that's, that's the pattern, is simply trusting in what God will do. And this is the pattern. Salvation is not given as a wage it is received as a gift the gospel is not about what you must do the gospel is about what jesus has already done on your behalf and this is a an accomplished reality justification is a a legal term a declaration not guilty right the case is thrown out You, you you you're dead to rights but the case has been thrown out and you're, you're able to walk free. Right? This is a new status. Paul also goes on to describe this salvation uh, as uh, what we call sanctification, a new trajectory. Uh, not only have we been given a new status, but, but God is working out real change in real time in our lives. He's, he's changing us. At this juncture in chapter 6, Paul asks a very pointed question. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? In other words, if our salvation has nothing to do with good works or merit or effort, then does it matter if we really stop sinning? And Paul says, absolutely it matters. Uh, You've been joined with Christ. You've been joined with him in his death and in his resurrection. You've been given new life. You've been given a new capacity. (laughs) And he urges them to live into that new reality. Chapter 6, verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Count yourselves dead to sin. It's a a financial term. Uh, I'm no longer on this side of the ledger. (laughs) I used to be a slave to sin. I couldn't help but sin. I was dead in my sin. But that's not the reality anymore. I am now on this side of the ledger. I've been set free from sin. 
It no longer is my master. And so Paul urges them to live in light of this new reality. It's a great section in chapter 7 where Paul's really brutally honest about the struggles of the Christian life. Paul says this doesn't mean that you never struggle with sin anymore. Paul says there in Romans 7, you know, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. Paul's saying there's a tension here. Um, in my mind, I, w- I want to obey, but I'm, I'm influenced by the flesh. This is Paul's terminology. In some translations, his, it says sinful nature. This is uh, our, our ongoing predisposition towards sin and selfishness. And so Paul recognized that very real tension being played out in the Christian life. A new capacity, a new life, a new opportunity, a new union with Christ, but, but still having to struggle uh, against sin and sinful desires. So this justification is a point-in-time accomplished fact. It's received not by effort or merit or work, but simply through faith. It's a gift. But sanctification is hard work. It doesn't just happen automatically. You have to, you have to struggle and, uh, and, and, and try to gain victory over sin. And Paul really lays it out here in chapter 8. The real key to all of that is the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God in the life of the believer. And we're able to walk, not according to the flesh, not according to our natural desires, but according to the Spirit. And so there's a, it's a wonderful section there on how God is working to change us. And it doesn't deny the struggles of, of life, but points us to what God is trying to achieve in our lives. And then glorification, uh, a new future. Uh, Paul's talked about the struggles of the Christian life, but... Paul wants to be very clear that we will not remain in that state of struggle forever. Matter of fact, he uses very vivid imagery. He says it's like labor pains that a woman experiences. They're very difficult, right? Very painful, but they're producing something, producing life. And Paul says, you know, stick stick with it in the midst of the labor pains. There's something coming. And he talks about how One day our bodies will be raised and transformed. We'll no longer struggle with a propensity towards sin. That will be removed. All things will be made new and made right. And he ends with a great declaration in chapter 8. We are more than conquerors. We will prevail. We'll come out on on top uh, at the end of this season of struggle. So, so he views salvation as sort of an accomplished fact, an ongoing reality, and a future reality. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. A wonderful uh, declaration of all that God is accomplishing uh, for us in Christ. The third major movement is gospel unity. Paul inserts three chapters that address the relationship between Israel and the church. Uh, Why is there so much emphasis given to these ethnic issues? Uh, I won't pretend to give the last word on this. There's a a lot written to try to to make sense of Paul's flow of thought. 
But Paul wanted these Gentile believers to understand the nature of their relationship with Israel. Paul introduces an imagery here of the olive tree. Uh, When you have a tree, the roots are obviously feeding the branches, bringing nutrients, life-giving sap, right, to the branches. And the the, the, the roots of the tree are are God's redemptive plan, his, his offer to bless and the, 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 the nation of Israel are the natural branches, right? They were first in line to receive God's blessings. Now, many of those natural branches, those Jewish people, had rejected and had been broken off. Branches that had been broken off from the tree because of their unbelief. And many of the, the, the Gentiles uh, have believed, and they have been grafted in. We don't live in an agricultural society, but you can actually take a branch from one tree and bring it over and bind it to another tree and it will grow. And it will take advantage of the nourishing, life-giving sap from that new tree. And that's how it is with Gentile believers who have come to Jesus Christ in faith. They've been grafted in. But Paul says to the Gentile believers, he says, don't get too cocky. Uh, the Gentiles can be broken off just like the natural branches were broken off. And those natural branches can be grafted back in. So he doesn't want anyone to feel a sense of superiority because they're Jew or Gentile. All of them approach God through faith. Paul is passionate about the unity of the church. It was not enough for there to be a Jewish church and a Gentile church. It would have been a lot easier for there to be a, a, a separate Jew and Gentile churches. It would be easier to form separate Republican and Democrat churches too. And churches for the vax, pro-vax crowd and the anti-vax crowd, right? Not only are we quick to divide over issues, there are a growing number of Christians who have separated from the church entirely. They see no need to be unified with anyone. We're living in a culture of privatized Christianity. This was an issue pre-COVID and has become even more prominent. A growing number of people who profess to love Jesus but are not interested in the church. And I would suggest to you that that's not an option that's been presented to us. That if you don't love the church, you don't love Jesus. This is the, I think, the tension we have to wrestle with with Paul here. That that the gospel is not just about individual people being reconciled with God. It is about people being reconciled with each other. We, in the gospel, gain a father. But we also gain a family. And you can't segment that. You can't take one without the other. And so I think this whole section on gospel unity really teases out some of the practical uh, relational implications of the gospel. The final movement here is gospel response, beginning in chapter 12. Uh, The letter really follows Paul's usual pattern for his letters. The first 11 chapters present theological content. This is what God has done. And the final five chapters address practical application. This is how you should respond. The pivot point is in chapter 12. 
verse 1, the therefore, right? All of this, all of God's grace, all of his provision of salvation, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. So this launches a section of application where Paul calls them to a gospel lifestyle. There's so much here in this, in this section here. Uh, I've tried to just summarize some of the, the commands, the exhortations. Uh, live with a humble recognition of your interdependent role in the body. So Paul uses body imagery here in this section. And he says, um, don't think too highly of yourself, but think of yourself with sober judgment. Try to think of yourself accurately. So Paul's saying, I don't want you to think that you're dirt. You're not, right? You're a vital organ in the body. But you need the rest of the body. The rest of the body needs the vital function of that organ. But that organ needs the rest of the body. Paul wants them to think of themselves in this interdependent way. A great word again for us in an era of privatized Christianity where we feel in many cases we don't need anyone. Love each other as family. Be devoted uh, to one another in love is uh, the the terminology here. It's It's a word for brotherly love. It's a family kind of love. I think, again, Paul's setting the stage. So much of our reactions or interactions or relationships are transactional. I'm around you because of what you do for me. But we are a family who have been bound together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And there should be a a steadiness, an unconditional type of love that ought to characterize our relationships with each other. If If we really understand the gospel and what's been accomplished. Live at peace. Uh, he has an extended section here about how to deal with people who are really hard to love, people who have overtly mistreated you. We are not to respond in kind. Instead, we are to seek to live at peace. Submit to human authority, chapter 13. All authority, godly or ungodly, is established by God. Submission is... Uh, in, a, in a representative democracy, does not mean that we are silent, right? There is an opportunity in our particular context and form of government to be able to make appropriate appeal, but we should not be characterized by the vitriol that is so common in our society. We ought to show honor to those that are in positions of leadership. No dehumanizing memes on Facebook. Yeah, I'm serious. I mean, there's, there's such a thing to, to be able to express concern over a given policy, but to put a picture of someone with some animal superimposed over their face, or, you know, that's just dehumanizing. There's no place for that in the Christian life. The question really comes down to whether we're willing to trust God's sovereignty. God has put our governor, our president, our national and local leaders into those positions of authority. The question is, do you trust God? Are you going to submit to God's authority? Right? This is a huge one in our culture, particularly in the West, where we don't submit to any authority. (laughs) Behave decently. There are certain behaviors that are clearly out of bounds for the follower of Jesus. We should not participate 
in orgies or drunkenness. These are, uh, this is a category here referring to unrestrained indulgence. And I would suggest it goes far beyond what we would probably normally think about with orgies and drunkenness. I mean, we think of drunkenness, maybe it's alcohol, but it could be drugs, obviously. I think we could put gaming on this list. It could be shopping. It could be eating. <laughs> Anything that, exp- that involves an unrestrained indulgence should be something that should not characterize the follower of Christ. We are not a slave to our passions. We are a slave to Christ. We should not be marked by sexual immorality or sensuality. We are not to be simply driven by pleasure. We should not be marked by quarreling or jealousy. As my Kentucky friend Gary would say, don't be ugly. Right? These these are things that should not mark God's people. Even a, a secular culture looks at these things as problematic, and they certainly ought to be things we steer clear of as a culture. I'll get myself in trouble here. Tolerate those with differing convictions or opinions. I recognize tolerance is a buzzword, and it has a lot of stuff, most of which uh, I would not agree with. Um, Paul, I, 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 I do not mean blanket tolerance. Right? Paul just got finished confronting sinful behaviors. So it's not saying just tolerate everybody, but Paul's talking in this particular section about people who have differing convictions And there is room for that in the church. We are not clones. And Paul is is encouraging them in these disputable areas to show grace and deference to one another. Put up with those who are not spiritually mature. This can be frustrating, right? Um, Paul actually reminds them to welcome others just as Christ welcomed you. Christ put up with a lot of junk and is still putting up with a lot of junk from you. And the least you can do is to put up with it in others. Right? Carefully guard the unity of the church. Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. Chapter 16, verse 17. Avoid them. Uh, Paul, again, is very concerned about unity, which has been a presenting theme. And he knows how fragile it can be. He knows that it has to be guarded and maintained. And boy, his comments in chapter 16 demonstrate a gracious spirit. He goes through person after person after person and expresses appreciation. He identifies them as a co-laborer in the gospel. He recognizes some unique contribution they've made to his ministry. Uh, We see just this wonderful aspect of cultivating uh, unity and an appreciation for the various contributions of the body. Well, the good news of the gospel is better news than what was celebrated on VJ Day. Uh, there on VJ Day, we celebrated the, uh, the end of military conflict, at least a temporary reprieve, a temporary season of peace. But of course, that victory did not address the the deep issues of the heart, right? It didn't address our greatest enemy, which is death. It didn't address how we can have a restored relationship with our Creator or enter into an eternal kingdom of peace. And these are the themes that are unpacked here in the Gospel, the truly good news.